0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Kathy Crow. A few weeks ago, the Conservatives, under the leadership of Doug Ford, won a provincial election in Ontario. The platform they ran on was rather scant on detail, to say the least, so the policy and spending implications of this victory remain vague but ominous. Given Doug Ford's record as a municipal politician in Toronto, given the Conservative Party's record the last time they held power in Ontario, and given that their campaign made promises that would result in the loss of billions and billions of dollars in revenue for the province while refusing to explain where that money would come from, social movements are expecting harsh austerity measures that will cause immeasurable harm and suffering to the most vulnerable people in the province. No doubt, over the next few years, there will be episodes of Talking Radical Radio about resistance of various kinds to this new government. Today's episode, however, is based on an interview recorded just one day after the election. Kathy Crow is a street nurse, and for more than 30 years, she has not only been working with and delivering primary health care to homeless people in Toronto, but she has been heavily involved in a wide range of activism, organizing, and advocacy around homelessness, poverty, and housing. She reflects on that long history of involvement in this interview, on what has worked and what hasn't, on what she describes as the post-apocalyptic scene that resulted the last time Ontario brought a new conservative government to power, and on her early thoughts about Doug Ford's win and its implications. Crow was initially politicized as a young working mother in the 1980s. The Cold War was in full effect, and it was the vibrant anti-nuclear movement of that era that first drew her in. She was part of founding a group called Nurses for Social Responsibility, which existed for over a decade. It began with a focus on anti-nuke and peace issues, and eventually tackled things like reproductive choice, homelessness, and pushing professional organizations in the nursing field to engage more seriously with social and political issues. Her professional trajectory started with hospital-based work, and then a stint in a private clinic, before she found her place in the community health sector, where she has worked over the years in a range of community health centers and in other organizations serving poor and homeless people. Being a street nurse has meant providing primary health care to people experiencing homelessness and deep poverty in community-based settings, which has often included drop-ins and shelters, but also in places like encampments under bridges, and in the tent city that existed on Toronto's waterfront between 1998 and 2002. And at every step of the way, it has also meant involvement in grassroots political work related to poverty and homelessness. Most of that has been focused on the local level. Anyone following the high-profile fight against the inadequacy of Toronto's emergency shelter system this past winter would likely have encountered Crow's name, for example. But much of that work is actually about things that are under the province's control, and some has involved work with a national profile as well. During the height of the cuts by Ontario's last Conservative government, beginning in the second half of the 1990s, Crowe was not only working as a street nurse, but was a co-founder and the volunteer executive director of the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee. They played an important role in responding politically to the harms of those cuts, and in pushing the city of Toronto and eventually the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to declare homelessness a national disaster, which in turn was one factor spurring the federal government of the day to take some much-needed, though still insufficient, action. Her involvement continues to this day in challenging the many ways our systems do harm to homeless people. And with this new government, things seem poised to get much, much worse. I speak with Crow about her involvement in struggles against poverty and for social justice in Ontario in the last three decades, and about what the victory by Doug Ford and the Ontario Conservatives might mean.
1: My name's Kathy Crow. I call myself a street nurse. I work in downtown Toronto, although I've worked nationally a little bit on the issue of homelessness. And people always ask about the term street nurse. It's a term that was initially coined by a homeless guy maybe 30 years ago who called across to a group of us who worked at Street Health saying, you know, hey, street nurse. And it was a very friendly, positive description of what we were doing. (laughs) And so the term stuck. And across the country, many nurses working specifically in the area of homelessness described themselves that way. For me, it's a political term. It means homelessness got so bad in this country that a specialty in nursing developed. As a nurse, I became involved in social justice issues when I was a young mother. The Cold War was in full force. And so I began to be involved in anti-nuclear issues and issues related to that and actually formed a group called Nurses for Social Responsibility that lasted about 10 years or longer. And then we spread our wings, if you will, to look at access to choice, homeless health care, many, many other issues beyond peace and anti-nuclear work. That was kind of a training ground for me specifically as a nurse, learning a lot of really practical skills around activism and social justice. As a nurse, I fell into working from the hospital to a private medical clinic, then ultimately to a community health center in downtown Toronto. That happened primarily because I saw the ravages, if you will, of extra billing during that period of time when extra billing was allowed by doctors in Ontario. And I saw a two-tiered healthcare system in operation because I ended up working literally on Bay Street in one of the tall towers for some private physicians that provided executive healthcare I've been pretty much politicized by my mother who was a nurse and a grandfather who was a CCFer and NDPer in the past to understand some of those issues around the value of social programs and what it used to be like pre-Medicare. So ultimately, a number of factors led me to move to the community. And I happened to land at a place called South Riverdale Community Health Center, which was a hotbed of healthcare activism. So again, it was another training ground for me. And I stayed working in various community health center sites for quite a few years until I reached a point where I did realize that what I could do as a nurse was very limited by the organization. And I very accidentally went to work in a little place called Street Health that provided health care for people who were homeless. They had just gotten funding. I was the second nurse hired. I really only went there because it was nursing driven. And I thought I would be very bored, and I thought I would the only old man with bad feet and leg ulcers. And I had all the stereotypes that many people still have about who's homeless. And then, of course, the exact opposite was true. It became a very dynamic work area for me, and I've stayed in that area for over 30 years, working at different locations. And now I'm essentially self-employed, working on homelessness specifically.
0: You mentioned that a couple of those early contexts were important because they provided opportunities to build skills related to doing grassroots political work. What were some of those skills?
1: I think one of them was simply identifying that what I call the downstream problem that I was seeing. So, for example, high levels of lead in children's blood at South Riverdale was clearly the result of an upstream problem that being pollution in the community, Canada metal, and a number of other plants that were there. So that my work as a nurse had to be about more than just taking the blood and advising the parents what vegetables they could grow that wouldn't absorb a lot of lead from their backyard. And that lesson has applied to me in everything I've done since. So that being a kind of a basic understanding. And then learning, so how do you then deal with the upstream issues? So that might be activist research that gets used in a political way it might mean how to lobby a politician it might be how to bring together a community groups to speak with a louder voice to a politician on an issue how to hold a press conference how to write an op-ed for the you know toronto star the globe and mail how to leak a story to the media on something that you think they should know about that they are not supposed to be talking about <laughs> skills like that that they don't teach you in nursing school.
0: And what did the everyday work of being a street nurse consist of?
1: It involved providing what you'd call primary healthcare to the community, and that means going out to where the community is, providing accessible care. That translated into doing clinics in drop-ins and shelters, and sometimes then responding to other locations. Over the years, then following the trends so that you learn, oh, there's an encampment under this bridge. There's people in the Don Valley. Tent City was a huge example of where street nurses did outreach. That was a 150-person encampment on the waterfront of Toronto that lasted close to four years. So it meant then having a regular schedule, reducing barriers so people didn't have to have a health card to see us. They didn't have to have an appointment, just being there and being accessible and having a cupboard of supplies that you could really respond to whatever people were coming in to see you for. And then having good relationships and then also spending time following up with people, doing hospital visits, taking people to hospital, just really providing all levels of care and linking them up to the main healthcare system. And of course, our goal was to put ourselves out of business so that the existing healthcare system would be open and accessible and provide care. And that proved to be very, very challenging. I would say the majority of our time was actually spent in doing what people would see as traditional nursing, but there was always a strong component of advocacy. So that meant we absolutely had to learn how to do interviews with, you know, City TV, for example. We absolutely had to know how to go to City Hall. To do a deputation, speaking to the Board of Health on the fact that, you know, there should be a free needle exchange in the ins. This goes way back. Or that we were beginning to see tuberculosis in our patients and what was that about? And why hadn't the city public health department disclosed to us that they already knew that there was a TB outbreak? And then, you know, building community skills and momentum on those issues. It's really almost like refugee camp work, to be honest. It's dealing with the health issues you see, but then fighting for the rights for people to have everything from water to safe shelter. Every single day was shocking. Every single day, there was some major new development or learning. I think what was important that as colleagues, we became friends, but we also just shared what we were seeing all the time with each other. And that was, I think, a way of coping, but also a way of then strategizing. So what do we do about this? How do we respond? How can we possibly survive this? But how are our patients, our clients surviving this too? We went through a period then when we were also going to a lot of funerals, burying a lot of people too, especially in the late 90s, witnessing absolute tragedies, you know, freezing deaths and death by fire and horrific circumstances. So I think it was a time of just momentous, forced learning. I was lucky that the nurse manager of that organization at the time and a couple others since then just absolutely supported the advocacy piece. And that was before organizations were afraid to do it because of threatened funding cuts. So it was just normal. It was expected of you to be able to do that. And that really helped a lot. It helped our mental health, because we weren't just dealing with the tragedies and the horrible health conditions and the deaths, we were also trying to prevent them in a huge way. The other thing that some of these organizations valued was the spirit of respect and inclusion of people that were homeless. So in some cases, people became board members of the organization, people that were homeless. When I worked down at Tent City, I was employed by a community health center. But on this side, in a volunteer capacity, I was also operating as the volunteer executive director of this massive advocacy organization called Toronto Disaster Relief Committee. So between the two, I had to kind of creatively figure out how to do certain things. So down at Tent City, we had a massive force of support that ranged from the Rotary Club to faith groups to social agencies. We would have clean up days down there. Unions would come down to help us put insulation into the shacks. Roofers would come down to help us put roofs on. Then we would have a caterer come down and we'd have a big spread at the end of the day with everybody. So those kinds of events help build solidarity, both with outside parties, but also specifically with homeless people that are there and it really gives you a sense that you're not alone and you're totally dealing with people's lives and ultimately their attempt to have a home and for their health.
0: Talk more about where the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee came from and about the kinds of work that it did.
1: It really came from a small group of people who were friends and worked frontline and then a couple of people that were our allies that included not frontline workers We were constantly sharing really the horrors that we were seeing. This was like 97, 98, that period of time. And it was also after the huge ice storm that had happened in Eastern Canada. During that period of time, I'd had this epiphany moment where I thought I should go to Kingston or Montreal to help in the ice storm because that's what I do here. I know how to work in those circumstances of, you know, 200 people put into a gymnasium, that kind of thing. And that's when I realized, well, why would I go? That's what I'm doing here. Like the connection of natural disaster and man-made disaster was made for me. But around the same time, we were all talking about that and we decided to form a group called the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee and to actually declare homelessness as a national disaster. We began to talk about that in May of 1998 and we handpicked people in a very non-democratic fashion It was very hierarchical, if you will, but for a purpose, we handpicked people that we absolutely trusted implicitly and who we knew thought the same way we did. That included some key frontline workers, but then it included some unusual characters. Peter Rosenthal, the activist lawyer, John Heap, who was an Anglican priest and former member of parliament, David Walsh, a progressive real estate developer, John Andrus, a Bay Street financier. and. I'm not naming everybody, but we had all worked with them either at inquest or Project Warrant, which was collecting 30,000 sleeping bags a year. So we formed this group. We spent over the summer to work on a state of emergency declaration, and then we built up for the release of it that fall. And in the meantime, we had to get unions and HIV AIDS organizations to endorse our declaration, et cetera, et cetera. And then we approached Jack Layton for support.
0: Uh, And in that era, Jack Layton was a Toronto City Councillor.
1: And then we issued the declaration and it made history. It was national news. We called for two things. We called for the 1% solution, which was for federal, provincial and municipal governments to allocate 1% of their budgets back into affordable housing because that's what they used to spend before it was all cut. And then we called for massive what we call disaster relief measures at the local level. And although we called ourselves the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee, our intent was absolutely that the relief that should come should be national. And a real expression of that relief effort was announced this week in Toronto, I mean, 20 years later, in the form of these huge prefab modular shelters that the city has just purchased for emergency shelter. Because, of course, in Toronto, they have never properly dealt with the emergency all these years. And now it's really a
0: catastrophic proportion. So over the time that you've been involved, the nominal political environment has been quite different at different moments. A social democratic government in the early 90s, very harsh cuts in the later 90s, then a different situation in the early 2000s. To what extent has it changed conditions on the ground to have these seemingly different political environments? And how has that changed your advocacy work in these different moments?
1: It's very impossible for me to say good things have come from any particular government, even the NDP government of the past. But it is easy for me to name the horrors that happened with certain governments. I vividly remember what happened after the conservative government was elected in the 90s in Ontario. And it so worsened conditions and, you know, homelessness doubled and tripled. The the few times that we've seen wins, I would say they've been primarily at the municipal level when we've had a champion. And when we've had a champion, we've been able to kind of access that world of moving municipal policy forward. The biggest example of that, and it really has never been replicated, was when Jack Layton was a city councillor in Toronto. He initially kind of raised his eyebrows when we talked to him about the disaster declaration, but quickly came on board and became a champion nationally on that issue. In fact, convincing the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to adopt the disaster declaration, and many cities did. And it was that municipal effort in terms of policy that I attribute to leading to the federal move to fund a federal homelessness program that did ultimately happen. But without a champion at that level, it's very, very hard because everyone that's working frontline is essentially working in a disaster zone. The frontline folks in Winnipeg, Vancouver, they can hardly put their head up for air. I mean, I know it's critical to build a mass movement at the street level. But you also have to be able to have an ally that can move things along for you. And we're not in a very good place in that world right now at any level of government that I see. So in some ways, it has really convinced me that the strength in activism is to build the activist movement at the street level with homeless people being a very important part of that. I always tell people that, you know, I've never really witnessed politicians or governments deciding to do something because it's the right thing to do. It's really only come when there's been that kind of push from outside. You can never assume that governments or politicians will do the right thing.
0: What have you learned in your years of doing this work about not just doing political work for and about people who are in such extreme need, but about doing such work with them?
1: I've only written one book before. It was called Dying for a Home. And my relationship working with people who are homeless has always been so important to me. And what I did in that book was I profiled some very special people. So every chapter is their story. I spent many, many, many hours interviewing each one of them. So their story, their voice is there. And it was my expression really to show how important that was. The whole work wouldn't be the same without people's participation. Ontario Coalition Against Poverty is embedded in the poor people's community in Toronto. I have less access to doing that kind of solidarity work right now, just because of how I'm situated in the work, but, absolutely critical. And that's where organizations and people working in the field, they have to have the resources in their work to support that. So that means having literally a budget line in their work so that they can give honorariums to people when they're speaking at press conferences or at events if they're homeless and being able to pay for them to travel to wherever to an event. And that means, you know, you have to give the workers time to do that because that's valuable work and you have to support poor people who are coming.
0: What is your political work focused on these days?
1: So I call them hot spots. I'll start with the shelters. The shelter system is inadequate, underfunded, and the conditions inside are horrible. And then we have this system of relying for 31 years now on the Out of the Cold program in Toronto, which is a volunteer faith-based program. And now we have layers of what are called respite sites, so overnight drop-ins and warming centres. So it's really like tier after tier, T-I-E-R, tier layers of, in a way, human rights denial of basic shelter. So that's probably the number one area I'm working on. And then number two is the massive amount of outdoor sleeping in unsafe conditions because there are not enough shelters. And at the same time, punitive responses to that, where the city will issue essentially eviction notices to people that are sleeping outside. You know, by Tuesday you have to move all your stuff and be gone, or we'll be moving it for you. And so they push people out of outdoor areas. Another hot spot is the huge burden of ill health and risk of particular conditions and health problems because of the congregate living in shelters. So obviously, people that are homeless have all the other potential health problems you or I might have but in addition we saw last year an outbreak of strep A in the largest men's shelter in Canada called Seaton House that lasted something like 15 months and then another hot spot is the growing number of women and children families that are homeless another hot spot literally is climate change and that has both implications in extreme weather and then how do cities respond to And then another hot spot is hate and discrimination that ranges from actual hate crimes towards people that are homeless to more systemic barriers such as hostile architecture that is becoming more common in big cities. You know, the bars on benches that prevent somebody from sleeping down, the spikes put outside of a store to prevent somebody from sleeping there.
0: So we happen to be talking one day after the election victory by Doug Ford and the Conservative Party in Ontario. So I'd be interested in hearing from you, based on your many years of involvement, what are you concerned that this might mean? And what do you think that people in Ontario need to be doing in response?
1: Honestly, my first reaction is I don't know if I can go through this again because it was so clear what the previous Conservative government did. I, you know, (laughs) I don't know where to begin. I think my biggest worry is going to be for the terrific progress that's been made around the opiate emergency. The healthcare providers and others who've worked to develop the supervised injection sites and the work to push the province and the federal government to develop more progressive policies on overdose issues. And of course Doug Ford does not have the same approach. So anyway. People are going to have to mobilize and organize and they're going to have to build strong networks and keep a watchful eye. And they're going to have to develop strong allies with opposition parties to try to save what we have and to try not to see further cuts to schools or libraries or funding to cities, etc. I'm partly situated at Ryerson University, but I do guest talks all the time, all over the place. I'm pretty appalled at the level of political ignorance. So I think we have to do a much better job of learning how to engage people with the political process. Because, you know, I I think most of us are saying, how did this happen? How did our population in Ontario possibly do this?
0: And how do you see your own work changing and evolving in this new era that Ontario has entered?
1: One of my goals is to have my book come out within six to eight months. My book is called A Knapsack Full of Dreams. I tell my nursing story, my memoir, but really I did it to share the activism tools that I use so that anyone that could read it, you don't have to be a nurse, would see that there's always a way. There's always hope. There's always some kind of strategy you can use to get a win. And I tell every single one I think that I've ever used you know, with not just myself, but with others. So that's in there. And I've also got a whole chapter in there that is really about, I compare it to a post-apocalyptic scene of what happened when Mike Harris was elected in Ontario as our premier. And I describe in vivid detail what that did to people. So I'm seeing this book as being a tool for people, individuals, and communities to help them realize that there are tools that you can use so that's one area. And then the other is I'm mentoring a couple of young street nurses. And then I'm developing something called master classes. And I don't mean like a master's in nursing, but I mean like a master class in kind of the art and technique of social justice work. Similar to, you know, how in music and dance and photography, there's something called master classes. So I've created about five of them. I mostly want to share them with nurses, but I could do them with anybody. And they're, you know, on how to work with the media, how to build a group to create social change, advocacy strategies, just politics 101. So I think I'll put a bit more emphasis into that. And apart from that, I'll still be working on the local scene to try to protect homeless services. So it's just kind of ongoing, right? And it's too soon after last night to figure out what else, except that we have to keep doing something, obviously.
0: You have been listening to my interview with longtime street nurse and social justice activist Kathy Crow. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.